Step three. Got it! Oh, how good is Steph Curry? On one, James. Oh, you LeBron drops the anvil. Marines with the defense. What's up, everybody? Welcome into the Under the Hood with John of the Hood podcast. I am Jay Hood. The executive producer of the Under the Hood with Jay Hood podcast is Jay Moore. But do you know who Jay Moore is? Johnny Moore, a.k.a. Jay Moore, a.k.a. Naki, the Beatman, Creative services imaging producer for ESPN Chicago and other top markets. You know you hear Jay Moore on the Captain Jay Hood morning show. Weekday morning, 7 to 10 on ESPN 1000 and streaming on the ESPN Chicago app. Yeah, but not only can you hear him sometimes chiming in on the show, but also you can feel his presence because of the production. Things have changed at ESPN Chicago for the better as far as a production is concerned. Not only on the station, but also on the show I host with David Kaplan. Do you know who Jay Moore is? You're going to find out right here on the Under the Hood podcast. Jay Moore, welcome to the show. You're already part of the show as the executive <laughs> producer, but now you are in the guest chair. What's up, brother? Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's a long time coming, brother. Yes, because there's a lot of listeners of Cap and Jay Hood of ESPN Chicago that don't go back as far as I do as a fan of yours before we started working together. Yeah. So let us start off first. First of all, I want to know how life is for you right now. January of 2024, as we record this, how's life for you right now? Uh, life is good. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm um, my family, my kids, everybody's doing well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm very thankful. So when did you know that you could be a creative person? Uh, well, I got to credit my mom for this because when I was a kid coming up, she used to play her little 45 records mm -hmm. to wake us up for school as she'd get ready for work. She was a registered nurse. Mm -hmm. And she had a very eclectic selection of music. It was not just R&B. It was not just uh, rock and roll. She played everything from Bee Gees to Percy Sledge to uh, even some Elvis Presley. You know, she would play these records every morning as she got ready. And that's when we knew it was time to get up. So even though I hated it because <laughs> I just wanted to sleep in, I eventually started singing along with the songs and actually have a better appreciation for music in general. So that's when my, you know, creative senses were tingled, if you will. That, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting that in the 70s and 80s, and I know this well because my dad owned a record shop mm -hmm. uh, in, in South Shore, many, many years ago, and he would bring home these different records. And it's kind of like, I could easily say I'm an R&B person, but mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm an R&B person. I am a house head, as you well know. I love, love house. house music. Oh, me too. You know, so that along with some rock, with uh, some country, and just, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm into every genre, but I don't mind every genre because it's music. Music makes you happy. Yes. And, and whether yes. or not you are blue, you're depressed, or you're happy, or in between, depending on the genre of music you like, it does something to your senses, right? Yeah, it's one thing that brings everybody together. Despite what type of music you like, people will gather if the music is good. Yeah. 
So I, I want to know about the first time you listening to music. You mentioned that that your mom listened to a lot of music, you know, and again, nothing like a good 45 or 78 oh, or a 33 and a third, <laughs> you know, especially if you had the old school stereo that could just stack the records so it would be no skips. Oh, yeah. So you didn't have to keep placing the record on there. <laughs> Damn, the record's over. That was two minutes. Right. Now I got to go back and put another three minutes on. Now I got to put another. Okay. So the first time listening to music that you enjoyed, what do you recall and what song or genre was it? Uh, it was probably like disco mm -hmm. and like the, you know, um, early 80s. Um, 80, 81, before disco was destroyed by Steve Dahl. <laughs> but, you know, it was just uh, the feeling of the 120 BPM, the fast rhythm, get you moving. I think that was probably one of the, you know, um, most enjoyable experiences of listening to music and, and understanding like, oh, yeah, that, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. The disco demolition, you know why that took place, right? Yes. It took, it took place because it was a, as a gathering of a bunch of assholes that couldn't dance. <laughs> that's what that was. Yeah. Also, when you dig deep for that whole disco demolition, I know people think that's just one of the great moments of Comiskey Park. Mm -hmm. Now, nah, nah, you know what, Jay Moore, what that was is, is that that was a destroying of, of great music. Yeah, culture, man. There was R&B records also that were destroyed, not just disco. Right. If you look back at the documentary, but I digress. <laughs> they think that that's such a great moment, but it, you and I enjoy it because it's, it makes you dance. It makes you bop your head. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's, you know, yes, it's a certain genre that we really enjoy, but still, it was great. I, mm. loved, I, I, I loved it. Um, what's the, you know, the first place that you mixed? Because here, I want to ask you about uh, being a mixer. Uh, a producer, because when I was in college, I had a choice. You know, I came from from KKC. You came mm -hmm. from Wright College. Yeah. All right. So we're both kind of City College of Chicago. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. 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 I had a choice. I could have been on eighty nine point three WKKC and be able to be a hot mixer on Friday nights or talk sports. And my thought at the time was, man, I'm not talking enough <laughs> when I mix. I need to talk more. And now people wish I talk less. Um, so can you remember the first place that you were able to perform? Uh, well, you know, my background goes, you know, kind of deep because I used to be in uh, a couple of groups. I used to have a rap group named Just Us. Mm -hmm. Well, we was uh, a rap and singing group. And then I had a group named Precise, um, which was just a total singing group. And I was kind of like the singer and rapper, but I wasn't the lead guy. I did a lot of the writing and producing for the group. So we did tons of shows around the city, and we got a, a lot of uh, fanfare and notoriety um, in, in the streets. No social media, no anything right. of that nature. Posters. Yeah, posters. Man, we used to put those posters up. For <laughs> real. <laughs> and, you know, what wound up happening was we met uh, Mike Love and the Diz uh, that were... Uh, the night host of uh, WGCI at the time. Mm -hmm. And they was like, yo, you know, could you guys do some parodies for us, like some funny songs? And we recorded 112's Cupid, but we made, it was called Quita. Uh -huh. <laughs> and the Bad Boys played that thing every night right after the song. And it, it just took off from there. So um, we gained more attention and were able to do more performances across the board. I mean, you talk about, uh, we wasn't even 21. Um, we did like the Click and Cotton Club. And they just wanted us there. And we got in there and we, we did a lot of shows. So 
that was kind of like my first run in with like celebrity and, 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 and being a part of like performing. You, you mentioned uh, the parody to 112 Cupid, right? Where did that come from? Because a lot of parody songs or parodying, you know, people's voices and all that came from old radio. Yeah. Were, were, were you, you listened to music, but were you someone that listened to a lot of radio talk and music combined? Yeah, I listened to a lot of radio, but, you know, I think the whole uh, fascination with parodies came from Weird Al, mm-hmm. how he used to do the Michael Jackson parodies and uh, we, you just get a, a laugh out of that. And so I think he always stuck in my mind when it came down to doing parodies, just trying to be funny and, and, and embody the song. Uh, favorite uh, Weird Al song? Where, right. Where's Eat It on there? Eat It. That's number one. Is it number <laughs> Eat It. Eat It. Yeah, and then Amish Paradise. That's, that was pretty funny. Yeah, Amish so. Paradise. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, man. It, it's, it's like anything else in music. Everyone, everything has a, a section, right? It's yeah. like Weird Al found his lane. Yep. and said, I'm going to do parodies of these songs. And I, that was when people weren't as litigious, yeah. you know, and it, he wasn't going to get sued for it. And people enjoyed it. They'd buy his records just because he was having fun with it. Yep. I mean, Michael enjoyed the parodies as well. Tell me about oh. Just Us. Which, uh, which group would that remind me of in R&B lore? We were a mixture between um, a tribe called Quest and Nirvana. Holy um, shit. It was my high school group. Uh, those guys were um, kind of like, I, w- I would say, our favorites in school. So we, we also played instruments. Um, we had a drummer. I was on keys. And uh, Skib, he played guitar. So, you know, we kind of like did that. So it was more so if you would look at those two groups, that was us. Hold a second. Okay, so my head's spinning, right? Nirvana and Tribe Called Quest. Yeah. So it's, so it's a bunch of uh, brothers uh, chilling, watching a baby float into a swimming pool <laughs> for a dollar. That, that's, yeah. what I, that's what I just saw right yeah, there. Yeah, basically. <laughs> you had children? You had toddlers swimming for a dollar? <laughs> that era of, you know, that music and the stuff that we did because... We actually did not perform other people's songs. We did our own original songs. And it's a whole story, man. We had a situation with Jive Records at one point. And it's, uh, Wayne Williams designed uh, R. Kelly. He gave us his card and we gave him our CD. It was just a lot of stuff that we could have been signed with them. We was going to go on tour with Heavy D. It was just a lot of stuff that happened in that era, but it just, it just didn't pan out. Why is that? Well... When you're assigned to a uh, management company, um, everything goes through them. And the management wanted a deal for his management company as a production deal. Mm -hmm. And the label just wanted us. And they couldn't come to an agreement. Mm. So it left us out in the cold until we got rid of the management. Um, How lucrative could it have been? Um. I won't say life-changing, but I would say it would have been good enough to pay for equipment, mm-hmm. studio. Um, you know, based off of your performance, your record performances and stuff like that, that's where you generate your money, as well as plays and, and radio spins. Then you get your publishing and stuff like that. So um, I think we had some decent records, and I think that if it did happen, we probably would have uh, uh, been pretty, pretty good. 
Jay Moore, this all sounds like I haven't even gotten to the radio yet. Yeah. I haven't even got to your experience on, on radio. This is all before you start to really delve into the radio business, right? You're, yes. you're dealing with agents and producers of music before you even step foot into, you know, radio stations to work and to make a living at this. Yeah, we were kids, man. We yeah. were straight out of high school. I, I used to actually play basketball and pretty much tore up my Achilles, so I gave it up, didn't want to do it anymore, and just focused on the music. This was during um, high school years, right? Yes. And where'd you go? Austin High School, okay. West Side. Yes. Yes. Tigers. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for that. Because we, we needed that little little extra. If you didn't know, folks, he, 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 he's with the Tigers. Yes. And so at that time, now I want to know, sports was big for you because there's football, basketball that's yeah. on the table for you, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you like best? I, I liked football best, but I played basketball better. Hmm. So I did play football on the team. Uh, I wasn't as good as my son, but I was a better basketball player. I see. Yeah. And at that time, you said, you know what, with this injury, then you had, it was all the rehab and everything else. During that time, did you think, okay, now it's time to go into communication slash music slash... No, I was never like... I never wanted to go pro in basketball. Yeah. I never wanted to try to get a scholarship. I just love playing. And, you know, my brothers used to take me up to the YMCA or Austin Town Hall. Mm-hmm. And I'm playing with, like, guys with full beards, like 35, 40 years old. And I'm dropping them off, and I'm, like, 15. So I credit them for my love of basketball because – you know, once I got to play with older guys and better competition, I was able to hold my own. And so I tried out for the team at school and I made the team. And what was that experience like? I mean, I'm sure it ended up with injury, but as far as the good times. It was pandemonium, man. It was great. It was just, you know, just being mentioned in the newspaper. Those things were like legendary. And, and I was so happy that my mom got to see those things. Yeah. And it's nothing like being in a Taylor Bell column in the uh, Chicago <laughs> Tribune sometimes. And it's just like Johnny Moore scores, yep. blah, blah, blah. Yep. And I was even like had the opportunity to be the student reader of the week for Channel 2. I don't know if you remember that used to come on. <laughs> hey, man, it was cool. I was trying to do it for my moms, bro. <laughs> Were you on with Harry Porterfield? Yes. Someone you should know. There's a West Side kid named Johnny Moore. He's doing well in school and is a two-sport athlete. Is that what that was? It was a, it was a Harry Porterfield. Was he coming to your door? They used to just have you do a, a script and read it, and they record you, and then they'll play it like around 3, 30, 4 o'clock or something yeah, like I that. I do so recall this. Yes. Yeah, so I was on there. You know, it, it is interesting the people that you're able to run into early in your life before radio because I, I, don't, I need to know – who could you find or how did you find people that were like-minded like you that appreciated music that want to harmonize with you, to be able to be in a group with you? Where did you find, I mean, people in high school or people that well, you knew, friends? Or? The guys in high school, this is how it went. Okay. Okay, the group Just Us, we um, was offered a deal with uh, a, a label in Indiana. I forget the name of the a label. We were offered a deal with them, but our group was splitting up. This was like after, right after high school, we, we were splitting up. And so they were looking for a four-man group to do uh, a version of The Whispers Rock Steady in that current time. Yes. And it was only, my Just Us group was four of us, but then 
one member left and another member went left. It was like, so it was just two of us left. So we couldn't fulfill the obligation to the label. And there was a three-man group named Precise that was out there that was like, you know, doing their thing. And so we courted them and took them back to Indiana to try to do the deal. And they loved the group. They said the guys sound great. And then on a ride back, they asked me if I would be in a group because uh, they were looking for a four-man. So that's how I wound up getting with the second group. Wow. Just to be able to find like-minded people that can be able to be, first of all, to be on the same page and then to be able to uh, be all in for it. I think that that, that says a lot. Yeah, it does. Um, for that time. So I do want to get into your experience at WGCI. Yeah. So just take us through the hallways. First of all, how you got there and then what that looks like, being at, at a historic uh, radio station that we all listened to growing up. If you loved R&B, if you loved hip-hop, you were turning on um, GCI. So what was that experience like for you? Okay, so after the group, we were, I was on hiatus, and I actually was a webmaster for uh, Chicago Public Schools. I used to do JavaScript and HTML programming. And I was actually responsible with two other people for doing the first Chicago Public Schools website. Mm -hmm. So I was working um, out of the school called Medill um, on the west side. And I was teaching teachers how to use the internet. This was before it was big. It just came out. So, you know, I'm teaching them, hey, WWW stands for this. (laughs) It's the third. And um, at the time, that's when I merged with uh, the Precise Group. And the Precise Group wound up doing the parody, like mm-hmm. we mentioned earlier, for the Bad Boys. We also did one called No Rats that was uh, like No Scrubs. Yes. We did that. They played that a lot. Uh-huh. And, and, it, and the rats, I think we know what the, <laughs> we know who the rats, rats are supposed to be. They love the cheese. Yeah. They- <laughs> <laughs> I used to be on a rat patrol, uh, but yeah. that was before I was married. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> and so that got the attention of the then program director, Elroy Smith, mm-hmm. um, at GCI, which he wanted some stuff for the morning show. So they asked Mike Love and the Diz, hey, who's doing these parodies for your show? Uh, yes, this guy, Naki, uh, he's got a group, uh, Precise, blah, blah, blah. So Elroy reached out to me and said, hey, can you put something together for the Crazy Howard McGee and Rick Party Boat Jam? Because they used to have two boats. And... Um, such an excess. Yeah, they used to have two boats <laughs> where they was trying to sell the boats out. Rick Party had his own boat. Crazy had his own boat. Oh, this is the old boat. Oh, this is the young boat. Blah, blah, blah. So I did some uh, commercials, like uh, funny commercials that were saying what was going to be on Rick Party's boat. Mm-hmm. You know, like they was going to be playing Ghostbusters and, you know, all, <laughs> all these like weak songs <laughs> and stuff. So it got the attention. And that's how the relationship with GCI was established. I want you to just, I, I just want the audience just to be able to just understand. This is where the business were, was. Not, and I mean, if you're doing this now, it would just be one boat, two yeah. different levels, right? Yes. The idea that the morning show host and the afternoon show host have two different boats. And they sold them out. Both the of them. Same station. Yeah. Two yeah. different boats. Yep. God almighty. They didn't care about insurance back then. They just wanted to have a good time. I mean, that's a lot of people on those boats. Sold out, right? Both of them, you said. Absolutely. Think about that. And so that makes a lot of sense, the the idea that there's trash talk between the two because ultimately Howard McGee had a different audience than Rick Party. Party, he was amazing. Yeah. Sonically takes over in Chicago and just has this fresh sound, right? Mm -hmm. 
And then Howard McGee, firmly entrenched in Chicago. I mean, everyone knows who he is, um, Hall of Famer. And the idea that he has a little bit of an older audience because it's early in the morning, he's been around for a while, and then to sell out both boats, that's just, that's insane. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> and, and from that point on, Kelly G, who used to program for BET, mm-hmm. um, he was uh, Crazy Howard McGee's uh, a creative uh, person at the time. So he got the job to go to BET, and that left his position open. And Elroy hit me and said, hey, you want to audition for Kelly G's job, mm-hmm. being a creative director for the morning show. At the time, I'm like, man, y'all only work four hours a day. Right. I'm like, I'm a webmaster. I'm in, you know, 35 now. I'm like, hey, I ain't trying. To, I didn't know how it worked, you know what I'm saying? Right. But they told me, hey, we give you a contract. We pay you this, blah, blah, blah. And so I auditioned for it, and I got that job, and I was a part of the show. I just need you to walk me through the hallways and tell me what that looks like on that floor. First of all, it's, it's downtown. I've been there years and years yeah. ago. What does that look like? It was 332 South Michigan. Yeah. That was the address. You go up. You walk in the hallways, they have all these vinyl plaques, gold, platinum records um, given to the station for their contributions to those songs. And it was just like a wheelhouse of um, a place where someone who wants to be connected to the music business or radio can just play in. And, you know, I didn't know the parameters. I didn't know you can do anything. So I can remember a day where I used to have to air check the show on CD every day and give it to Elroy, mm-hmm. the program director. And I go in his office, it's a gentleman sitting right there just chatting it up. They laughing. and So I give the CD to Elroy and I leave out. About 10 minutes later, Elroy said, hey, you, you know who that was sitting in my office? I said, nope. He said, that's Kevin Lyles, the president of Def Jam. I'm like, what? Wow. He said, so when these people come up here, you can talk to them, you can get their information, get their number, get their contact, do whatever you need to do. So Kevin went upstairs to meet with Marv Dyson on the 28th floor, who was the president of uh, GCI at the time. Yeah. And you know where I went? Right up there. Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me. (laughs) Pardon me. I got Kevin Lyle's information and definitely Kevin Lyle's hooked me up with a whole bunch of stuff from that point. I, I, I think that's interesting because many in those positions, general manager, program director, president of operations, they would hold those type of people close to the vest, sneak them in and out of the building, walk through, you know. And, but the idea that um, someone said, you know what, Johnny, you need to know these people, you know, get his information. That's great. That doesn't happen all the time in this business. Not all the time. I mean, Elroy is a pretty genuine dude, man. He's always been that way. Where do you place him amongst the best bosses that you worked with? You work for yourself, so there's not you didn't. It's not who you work for. It's it's who you work with. Because there is a difference. I, I learned that over the years, Jay Moore. Like, like the idea that well, you work for this company. You work, actually you work for yourself, but you work with a lot of different people. Yeah. I haven't worked a lot of places um, because my tenure's been a long time, but I would say he's definitely um, top. He's definitely the top. And respect it. Very. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very much respect it. Yeah. So I want to know your break from GCI to Power 92. So why did you have to leave GCI to go to Power 92? Why the switch after, after a few years, actually? 
Elroy put together Chocolate Jocks, Trey and Aki. Yes. All right. So he started that. Uh, Trey was actually a producer on the morning show with Crazy Howard and, my, and myself. So we were already in-house. Mm -hmm. And so he teamed us up and said, hey, you guys want to do Saturdays. And then Saturdays became, we got the show, and then we did Saturdays and Sundays. Yes. And we worked in seven days a week, but we crushed it on the weekends. Mm -hmm. I mean, because just our style of radio and content was kind of different from what everybody was doing. Kind of like from the Howard Stern tree, but like Howard Stern light. Yes, yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, we got pretty popular and our show became like number one on the weekends. And um, we even had like people that would drive through like programmers, like somebody from Minnesota wanted to hire us to come do mornings. And, you know, we just never entertained it, but they loved the content. And so once the new station, Power 92, came into the market, they were looking for someone to carry that. Um, Doug Banks was going to do syndication in the morning and Chocolate Jocks, Trent Ike were going to do nights. And so um, the program director uh, for Power was Jay Allen, mm -hmm. who was at GCI at the time as the assistant program director, but he went there and he uh, was the programmer there. So, you know, automatically he like, look, we want you guys to come over. And, you know, Elroy let us do it. Let's uh, delve into um, Trey and Naki, the Chocolate Jocks, a iconic duo for your time. I want to talk yeah. to you about this because, all right. So, yes, I would listen to you and Trey on the weekends because it was different. It was different than anything else on the station at the time. The music's all the same, but it, it, everything, even to 2024, it's personality driven. Yes. No matter if you're playing the same 20, 25 songs, you know, within a four-hour set, it's uh -huh. still about the personalities, about when you turn the mic on. Right. And so it, here's what's, what I found interesting about your show, and I don't know if you've been told this before, but as someone who's a radio head that listens to everything, the difference between your show and others is that there are two producers there that's getting a chance to be on the air, and so they already know how they want to be able to go about it because it's, it's regimented. It, is, it sounded like you guys knew exactly what you wanted to do. It didn't seem like you are doing it out of your ass. Producers know how to be able to be suited and booted, know what they want to do from one segment to the other, and so it sounds clean. Yes. As if you guys already had, like, I don't, and again, you have to tell me, I don't know how many meetings that you guys had, but I just thought that the way you guys went about it, it sounded like, okay, here's two young guys that know exactly what they're doing, sounding like they've been on the air for 10, 20 years together. Um, how much preparation was that? And do you feel uh, that I'm correct in that two producers being on the air uh, actually work and it sounds cleaner that way? You know, I think the way we went about it, this was our shot. Um, we we, we kind of coined ourselves the future of Chicago radio because we were young, mm -hmm. big opportunity. Chicago is the third largest you know, radio market. And so for us to get that shot was just like mind blowing because usually they would say, oh, you have to go to market 50 and then market 110 before oh you God. can make it to a major market. Heard that forever. Right. But that didn't happen with us. Yeah. And so we took it very serious. Um, we, we prepared because we knew Mike Love and the Diz, which were kind of like at least my mentors, they were crushing it. And so if, if we were going to even stand up to those guys, we had to be on point. So I think we prepared 
um, way more than the average. I mean, we talked a lot. Um, we just we just went in and said, hey, like usually some people will come in. I think the rule was you have to be in an hour before your show. Yeah. I mean, we was there like two, three hours before the show, man. Just yeah. like, hey, man, let's let's do this, let's do that. And because we were super excited and we really enjoyed what we were doing, and we wanted to put on a great show for the audience. Before we get to, to Power 92, I want to know more about that and you're being able to cross over. But give me that lineup for GCI with the bad boys in it because they work 6 to 10, correct? Yeah. All right, give, me the, give us the, the entire lineup at GCI during that time. It was uh, Crazy Howard in the morning. Yeah. Uh, then it was Irene Mojica in the midday, Rick Party in the afternoon. Then it was Mike and Diz at night. And then? Then you had a, um, uh, I don't know who was doing the... Uh, it, was a syndic- it wasn't syndication. It was probably, again, a local show. Yeah, but it was, it was the um, Quiet Storm. Ah, oh, that's right. So I don't know if it was Mike Hudson or somebody that was on there, but, you know, they had the pipes. Yeah, so you, you got to have that. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> they had a quiet storm. But it was either Mike Hudson or it was, it was somebody. I forgot. Okay. Guy. All right. So it, it's something else that stood out, what you were talking about, because there are some that don't know that there was a time, and now we have the internet now, so you can be able to live stream it, but there would be program directors that would drive to certain cities, get a hotel, turn on the radio in the hotel, and listen. Mm-hmm. to be able to monitor the talent. Because, again, everyone didn't have streaming at that time. They would go there. I know this for a fact. The idea, think about this, Johnny. You go to a, like, I hear there's probably some good, um, you know, talent in Chicago. I'm just going to just get, stay at the Hyatt for the weekend and listen to the station, monitor it, find out who's a good, um, the good talent, and then try to reach out to them. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that Minneapolis was reaching out. Yeah, they wanted us to do their morning show. And I think... Uh, we went to Jay Allen about it. He was like, y'all want to go from Market 3 to Market 55 or something like whatever, whatever Market Minnesota was. Mm-hmm. You know, he was just like, mm, it's up to you guys. But, you know, we just decided to stay. Mm. And that wasn't the only people that um, listened to our show and, and, and kind of wanted us to do some other things. I mean, we were doing stuff for Milwaukee. Um, but, yeah, we, I mean, we, we were doing a lot of different things. Okay, so I do want to ask, because this, I'm sure, is still in the streets regarding the bad boys versus the chocolate jocks. Yeah. Okay. Was there, I mean, yes, you looked up to uh, Mike Love and the Diz, and those two guys, not only great sports fans, but also, I mean, they were an iconic duo as well because they changed the face of night, night radio. Yes. Sometimes that was a throwaway after afternoons, but they made something out of it where the callers were engaged and... You know, again, think about this. Just to be able to be number one at, in the evenings as often as they were, it was, it was amazing. Would, did it ever get contentious? Because here you two, you and Trey, the upstarts, and then you have an established uh, Mike Love and the Diz show. Was there ever an issue between the four of you? I wouldn't say personally um, it wasn't. I think, you know, because, you know, Mike Love is the one that got me in the door. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as... Um, telling Elroy, hey, this guy's doing all these parodies and you can use them. He didn't have to do that. And also, uh, I think um, Trey used to host on CRX, which was, I think, Columbia College Station. Right. And he was allowed to come up to the Bad Boys show and host their countdown. This is before him and I ever met. 
so in a way, they both helped us get to radio, you know, with me, with my group and him just coming up and hosting. So it was never like any personal beef, but what wound up happening was um, when I went to power, I told Jay Allen, I said, look, man, when I go to New York, I go to Atlanta, I go to all these cities, I hear them embracing their local talent. Mm-hmm. GCI wouldn't play a lot of local talent at the time. And I said, if, if I come over here, man, we have to do something different. So he was like, why don't y'all just do a show? We started this show called The Power Hour, where we play nothing but unsigned local talent. Mm-hmm. And it blew up, which we dropped Power Hour CDs. And a lot of people happened to get deals and situations from that effort. You got like Cap One who got a deal. Kanye got a deal. Uh, Twister was in between deals. He was leaving uh, Seawall. He signed to Atlantic. Uh, it was it's so many things that were happening because we were just playing records that we thought were the best records in the city. And I think that was kind of where the bad boys were handcuffed. Where they, only, they, they played a record like at, at, at night. It was probably like uh, Home Jam. That's what they called it. So they played one song. Mm-hmm. But we played like two hours of... <laughs> so we were able to get people in. And I think that was kind of like the changing of the guard where it was kind of like, mm, okay. And it was never any, like, like, like I said, personal beef. It was just like, you know, they were number one, we were number two in the ratings. We had a bum signal. I think we probably would have took over. But um, yeah, it was never any uh, personal beef. Okay. Um, and I, I would imagine because you're, you're playing local artists, that's close to your heart because you and your group was a local artist. Yes. That's I mean, what, the struggles yeah. of a local artist is just like, and not now, because now it's pretty much easier to get in be, with the you know, social media and things that are available. But back then, it was tough. And those two to three or four minutes meant the world to these artists just to hear themselves on the radio. And people that never heard the song before actually dig it. So how difficult was it for you to leave GCI to go to Power 92? Ah, well, um... How much did you struggle with that? I didn't because when I met with Elroy and Marv, I told them I would stay an extra couple weeks and I found somebody to come in to replace me. And they appreciated that um, That after I left. That wasn't your responsibility though, Johnny. You didn't have to do that, did you? It wasn't. But the person I am, that's just me. You know, I don't want to see anybody struggling or anybody, you know, um, in a position where um, they can't go further because I'm not there. So for those that don't know, Johnny, we should explain to our audience um, how big WPWX was at the time. Because I I remember reading in the newspaper, Robert Feeder, who had a, a media column, said that there's a new... Uh, hip-hop station that's coming to Chicago and it's going to be Power 92 WPWX. I was like, 92.3 on the dial? I haven't been down that way in a long time, yeah. right? <laughs> I, like, let me go down here and see and say B96, no. It's like a 95, uh, um, Z95. <laughs> the B-killer. <laughs> Z95, everybody, if, if you don't remember. So ridiculous. Z95 and B96 were in such a battle that Z95 said... 
You know, the B96 is always in commercials. Hey, we're not in commercials. <laughs> go down there. Go down to part. Go down to uh, B96. We'll wait, and there will be ten seconds of silence. <laughs> See, we told you they're in commercial, and we're still rolling. Z95, the B killer. It's like, okay, that's the stupidest shit I've ever heard. That's <laughs> so like 10, 10 seconds of silence just for people to roll down the dial from 95 to 96.3 just to see if they're in commercial. Oh, man. Told you they're in commercials. Like, oh, God. All right. So I had to go back down. So, you know, you go scroll back. 92.3. And so as they were launching the station, Summertime from Will Smith was on. Mm-hmm. And it was on a loop forever. Yeah. Yeah, how good is that memory, right? I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, but I remember summertime. I mean, <laughs> it was rolling the entire time until the station launched, correct? Yeah, and then we played. Uh, I got the power as well. We looped that one too. Yeah, it was a grind, man, because we didn't even have all the equipment set up. It was like we were building everything from scratch. They gave us the signal. They gave us the space. Now we needed the people, and we needed to fill it. And so we were. A part of that history of, of, of uh, building that station. Okay, Jay Moore, we got to talk about this part of it as well. Again, I, you have us walking through the hallways of WGCI yeah. uh, downtown. Now, again, downtown, everyone knows where GCI is. They know where to find it. And now you go to Calumet Ave yeah. uh, in Hammond, Indiana. Yeah, man. And I've, I've been to both stations. I've been to Park. Yeah, I've been to Crawford Broadcasting and Power 92, and the idea, you know, the old cage is up, and it's kind of just woven into the, the <laughs> fabric of the, of the neighborhood, pretty much. If you drive past it, you'll miss it. I, I'll ask you this before we even take another step. For the amount of people that you met at GCI, yeah. artists, executives, everything else, big time downtown Chicago, how difficult was it to be able to get the artists that you want, top-notch artists, to come to Hammond to this little startup, Power 92, initially? Well, initially, it was like uh, you're going from the Waldorf to uh, <laughs> the Red Roof Inn. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> so, uh, at first, it was kind of hard to get um, artists to come down. Um, and try to find it, right? Yeah, I but mean, once um, Power started to chart with the Nielsen ratings and stuff like that, and BDS and Media Base were pretty big as far as artists getting spins and they saw that um this station would take a chance on a record uh without having to uh do let me do the research first Mm -hmm. um and we let the mixers go wild like dj ferris and bulu master they were able to you know uh play what they wanted and it was not like um most radio stations where you play off a list and that got attractive to a lot of the artists and executives because it's like, okay, these people will give us a shot before the big guys will give us a shot. And, you know, that's the story. Give us the initial lineup at Power 92 when you first got there, you and Trey. It was Doug Banks in the morning. He was syndicated. It was Courtney Hicks in the midday. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, Courtney. Oh, my God. And then... (laughs) It was Donnie Devo, the freaking Puerto Rican. <laughs> Holy <laughs> He was in the afternoons. That's yes. right. Shout out to Donnie. Donnie Devo. Then it was us at night, and then after us, it was Sean Knight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, if, if this is, it sounds like this, because it is true, you guys are, are head up against 
the uh, the six to ten show at WGCI. Yep. You are against um, guys that you respect. So what was that like initially to be able to take on Mike Love and the Diz, Victor Blackful, his uh, government name? Yeah. He'll love me saying that. <laughs> um, so, so what's that like, knowing that you guys are put in position to take them out? Because that's what it is. That's competition, correct? Yeah, it was kind of like, uh, I would say, Kobe playing his first game against Jordan. Mm. So eager to get in, and you want to make a, a, a big impression and a big splash. And um, it didn't happen right away. Um, it took time for us to build that audience. And it took time for us to become the number two rated night show in Chicago. What was the strategy going in? Yes, you and Trey had your ideas of how to be able to make people laugh and let people know how great your show is. But there had to be a strategy, right? Because I feel like there's a little Howard McGee, Rick Party thing happening where... Yeah. I mean, look, the bad boys were it, but you guys are even younger. What was that, that strategy to try to be uh, less than or more than or different than uh, the, the our competition? It was just be us, um, be relatable to our audience, understand that we're not the bad boys. Mm-hmm. We're not Crazy Howard. Um, and we were put in a position to carry a brand so we were just trying to be us, man. The things that we did on the air were the things that um, we felt were funny or we felt compelled by or um, things we felt were interesting that we thought the audience of our age group would want to hear. Mm-hmm. And so we made that a point every day, even like implementing entertainment news and things inside of the show that we felt was important. So I think that was our, our stumping ground in the beginning. We should say, hey, man, we're just going to be us. Okay. So let's talk about you and Trey as a dynamic. Yes, you did work together, but what was that dynamic like going from GCI to Power 92? What was the dynamic like between the two of you? Um, people thought we were like the closest of friends. Like we were like uh, brothers or you know it sounds good on the air but i mean we wasn't really like close off there we we did a lot of uh show prep and things of that nature but we, we really wasn't close it was just like um you know i think i i'm maybe three years older than him so um you know at the time you know his mindset was on one thing and my mindset was on something else. It was kind of like the Shaq and Kobe thing when they played for the Lakers. And, you know, you win championships. And, yeah. and that's something we did. But, you know, we were never like, uh, you know, best buds, if you will. Um, why did that dynamic not happen for you guys to not only be, you know, part of show business, but show friends as well? Um. When you think about it, it's, 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 a, it's about the people who's around you. Mm-hmm. And I can remember um, when I first suggested to do the Power Hour to Jay Allen, uh, trading one of the parts of it. He's like, you do it yourself. Yeah, go ahead. I'll be on with you, but you program the show yourself. And I did. And once we got in them streets and people came to him like, yo, man, can you play my song? He was like, hey, can I put one song in there? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Next week, can I put two songs in there? Yeah, all right, sure. 
Hey, let me, let me get three songs in there. <laughs> All right, man, listen. You program a week, I program a week. Because the juice was loose in yeah. the streets, man. And so I think for the most part, it was immaturity on both parts because we could have came together and, and reconciled. And I think at one point, we went out to L.A. for Soul Train. And I can remember Trey sitting in the lobby of the hotel I was there with this guy, Eric Kubici, Troy Marshall from MCA Records. Lala was with us because she was on the air with Eric Kubici. Mm-hmm. And I asked Trey, hey, man, you want to come hang out with us? Because, you know, he was just sitting there by himself. And he came and hung out with us, had the best night of his life, got lit. We got pictures, Bulu Master taking pictures of him drunk. Oh, it was so crazy. <laughs> we had so much fun. And I thought that was a bonding moment for us. But then when we got back to Chicago, it was like stale chips, bro. Mm. And so that's when I knew that it wasn't going to last. Um, so I just need to know that you'd had to be conversations that you had with Trey to be able to, to fix this, where, again, you have a successful show, but yet there is a, a disconnect between the two. What were those conversations like? I just think that he didn't know what we had. Mm-hmm. And I think at the end of the day, it was more so like... Uh, you know, a big brother kind of scolding a, a little brother, mm-hmm. you know. And some people don't like that, you know what I'm saying? It's like, look, I'm three years younger than you. I'm making the same amount of money than you as you. Um, how can you tell me anything? And I, I had to respect that. What was the final straw? Um, I would say contract time. Mm-hmm. Um. We were planning on uh, holding out, and we had a lawyer that told us to hold out. We were doing our last show, and... Still at, working nights, by the way, right? Still working nights. Yeah, we're doing we, a, yeah no upper mobility in the company at, at, at Crawford at that time? I mean, you know, they did a little something, but when you find out the afternoon show host was making more than you, and our show is the show that's selling out... I mean, we, we had no space for commercials because everything was sold out, like, for the year. It was like, you know, something has to change. You got to pay us. And I think what they did was he signed a solo deal to do the show by himself without letting me know. And then I went back to GCI. Mm. And that was it. Um, I just, that, I find that fascinating that that you all are doing that well. And I know that you guys did that well because it was in the newspapers. That's documented yeah. how well you guys are doing at night. But yet, there was no possibility for you guys to even move up. If this show is successful, I don't know why you guys can do afternoons or middays. But afternoons, actually. But see, it was coming. It just wasn't in our time. Because mm-hmm. remember, Trey went to mornings. Yep. And he did mornings over there for 10 years by himself. Yeah. So... If we could have just held out a little bit longer, that probably would have been us together doing mornings. But he signed that deal by himself to leave you behind. Yeah, because they, they knew they couldn't pay both of us. And they felt that since I was heavy in music, that I wasn't going to be around for radio anyway. 
that story is as old as the hills. It, yeah. it, and it happened to you. That is, yeah. there's so much of it in our business still. Yeah. It's still in our business. Yeah. What, what happened to you happened to Mike Francesa and, and Chris Russo. Mm-hmm. It, happened, uh, it happened at the score yep. when I was there. Yep, and and people if they if they know the history of sports radio, they know exactly the changes that were made in the '90s, uh, and now and now was part of that as well. Those changes as well, and uh, and so it happened to you. Yeah, you know, going up the back staircase or having side meetings and not being able to confront your issues or or giving a heads up. Hell, it, it happened on ESPN Radio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing like the back staircase to be able to say you speak your piece instead of telling your partner. This is the direction I'm going in. You go your direction, I'll go mine. And all of a sudden, there's a secret deal made by, by Trey. Yeah, you, you live and you learn, though. Yeah. Because, um, you know, we've talked. Um, when I was in San Francisco, I had a record called Sunshine that was uh, on a Grammy ballot. He was in Texas. Um, and he was doing programming down there. And he actually played the record. He played it a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I feel like we got past it. But... Um, at the end of the day, you always look at what could have been. Well, next year on Unsung, we'll talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, goddamn. Yeah, man. <laughs> I mean, it's like. It's a it's, story. Seriously, it's like one of those sad, song, sad stories you see on TV One. It's a story for you. I tell you, it's a story. Yes, sir. Well, you had not only radio experience, but some TV experience as well. Dealing with music, right? Yeah, I was the first non-celebrity to host Sucker Free Sunday on MTV and MTV2. Johnny, where did you do that out of? You did that in New York? Yeah, it was out of New York. Yep. Wow. When I actually did those particular Sucker Free Sundays, we were, we, they flew us out to L.A. Mm-hmm. And so we were out there for All-Star Weekend and, and stuff like that, and we just taped a series of shows. That's so unbelievable. Yeah. Being on MTV, the iconic M- MTV. Yeah, it was, it was amazing, man. I still have the, be- the beta tapes and the, uh, the, uh, the VHS tapes of the shows. They sent them to me. So I got to convert them. That, that, by the way, as if you didn't already have that on radio, that had to also help increase your portfolio as far as many people that you met, right? It did. Violator Radio, Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah. Tell me about that in 2012. Uh, one of my friends, DJ Scrap Dirty, uh, started Valley the All-Star DJs with uh, legendary Chris Lighty, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Chris Lighty had a management company called Violator, which he managed Missy, 50 Cent, Busta, LL Cool J, a lot of the top hip-hop artists. So it was a spinoff of his management company for the DJs. And then we wound up getting a show on Sirius XM that was Violator Radio, which featured some of the uh, Violator DJs every week. And so I was a part of that as a mixer as well as a host. You came up with that name? No, that's uh, Chris Lighty. That's Chris Lighty came up with the name. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't collaborative. That was his deal. That was his name, his brand. He just gave it to Scrap, and Scrap gave it to us to use with the DJs across the country, in which we still have it today. Now, the San Francisco thing happened because, of course— Elroy Smith uh, was out there in 2015 where he went to do Intercom. Mm-hmm. Intercom is now Odyssey. Yes. And so he wanted me to come out. And I came out in 2016, and I was the imaging director uh, for all five stations. And so that's how I wound up getting into San Francisco. 
new city, uh, and if you could say in a, a word, what is the musical choice for San Francisco? If there's just one that is prevailing over anything else, uh, it would have to be hyphy music, um, anything that that, that slaps like up tempo um, house. Uh, not necessarily house, but um, it's just like it's called hyphy. It's like uh, um, just up tempo. Um, heavy bass uh, rap music. Okay. And and how did you like that? Loved it. Yeah. Loved it. I mean, it's things that worked out here in Chicago that didn't work out there, like uh, uh, Womack to Womack, Baby, I'm Scared of You. Yeah, yeah. That record would be a new record in San Francisco because it didn't work when it came out in the 80s. I was going to ask the original or like the because I've heard it mixed before also. The original didn't play in San Francisco, uh-huh. and so if we played it today in San Francisco, it'd be considered like a new song. It's just crazy. I mean, even like DJ and I had to change up a lot of my um, record selections because they were pretty uh, high on Mac Dre, who's a rapper that's from out there. Um, just you know, E Forty, Too Short. Um, you know, a lot of stuff didn't work, man. So you had to play the stuff that they like. I, I was in, only in San Francisco for uh, four days with the, the UIC Flames. We played the Dons of San Francisco. And I enjoyed my time there. It was short. Uh, stay at the wharf in that area. Yeah. And so yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's really cool. I, you know, I hope they'll be able to go back there again sometime. You got to um, watch out for Tenderloin. Uh, is that a group? No, it's not. It's an area where you don't want to be. It's 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 a bad area right before you get to downtown. Yeah. Um, you know, when I first got to San Francisco, it was like Gotham City. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, "There's some bulls." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I, as I stayed there, I got to love the city and love the people and love the atmosphere and learn about you know the culture of the city because. It's not like L.A. where it's fast-paced Hollywood, glitz and glamour, and this and that and the third. It's a real city. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would use, I stayed downtown my first year before I moved across the bridge. Um, I used to have to walk. I wanted to walk to work every day because it's like a 20-minute walk. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they have a real, like, problem with, like, you know, homelessness, man. It's yeah, like, it's, it it's, it's just real sad. You got people out there with tents on the street. And yeah. It's no grass. And they, they, they have these dogs that, you know, can't even, like, wipe their behinds in the grass. Yeah. So it's just sad, bro. And just to see that walking back and forth every day, that's when I learned about the city. Grimy. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, there is uh, a guy that came up to me in San Francisco, white guy, denim jacket. Denim jeans, pretty much a denim tuxedo, Canadian yeah. tuxedo, actually. Yeah. Um, and he comes up to me, he goes, hi, brother. Do you have a cigarette? And he looks haggard, right? <laughs> hey, brother, do you have a cigarette? I said, no, sir, I don't smoke. And he said, good on you. And he kept walking. It's a nasty yeah. habit. <laughs> but he wanted one. Yeah, but he wanted one. <laughs> he was yeah. about it, though. Yeah. He was asking. It was like, just in case. He goes, it's a nasty habit. Good on ya. 
So I say thank you, sir. I appreciate yeah. that. The nightlife is incredible, though, in San Francisco. I got to shout out my man, uh, DJ Billy Vidal, who's a legend out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he used to run with Digital Underground and a lot of um, different people from the Bay Area. And my guy, um, DJ MDA, I did a podcast with them called Digging in the Crates, and we did the radio show on Q102 called Digging in the Crates. We did that every Sunday where we played just like all slaps, bro. Like just stuff that you ain't heard in a long time. And oh, people loved our show. We used to do like uh, these uh, bits and stuff where we were uh, the greatest serials of all time and, and things like that, man. People loved that show, bro. It was just, oh, it was amazing. Uh, before we talk about your return to Chicago, I want to find out from you, and I, I'm remiss in not asking you earlier, about the first time that you were starstruck. It's one thing to be able to, you know, go through the business and meet a lot of different people in an early age. But, I mean, someone that was in studio with you or someone that was in the same vicinity as you, you again, whether it was a club, mixing, Mm. radio station, what was the first time for that? Uh, I would have to say, let me think. Um, Usually, like, um, when I'm interviewing people or people come to the radio station, I really didn't get like starstruck because I'm kind of in the same industry. Yeah. It was like, uh, you know, I, I, it didn't really hit me like that. But I think um, one time we were at an event. We was at a, uh, a listening party for Chrisette Michelle when she first got her deal. Mm. And uh, we was in New York. And I go to the back. And I I see Jay-Z at the uh, bathroom. So Jay-Z knew me from Chicago. So we talking about uh, uh, something. I think this was, uh, I I forget what we were talking about, but he gave me his assistant's uh, um, phone number and email. Assistant name is Sue. She's still with him today. Mm -hmm. And I turn around, go in the bathroom, and I come out. And Michael Jordan's right there. I never met him a day in my life. I was like, that's MJ. Damn, that's MJ. And he was just standing there talking with a few people and this and that. And I was just maybe like two feet from him, maybe two and a half, three feet. Yeah. I think that was the only time I was like, damn. You know what I'm saying? Just really getting to see him in person and, and stuff like that. But other than that, that's pretty, pretty much it. I had a, it's so weird that we're similar in that way. Seeing Jordan in the locker room for the first time. <laughs> It just like kind of like it, it. It's not like it's long lasting, but it's that, that little shock in your chest. Yes, that little shock yes. in your chest, man. That little yes. takes your breath away just for just for a slight second because you walk in the locker room, you know you're going to see the Bulls. Yeah. But the idea that you turn the corner, you go in that locker room at the stadium, and you see Jordan, and and it's like Michael, I have a question. Yep. And he says, "Let me just get my suit on, and, and then you can ask me anything you want." Because he was cool like that, Jordan. Yep. It was about the image first. It was about the image first. Like, let me put this suit on, and then we could be able to talk. And, yes, sir. Whatever you need, Michael. Right. <laughs> you know, it just it's one of those things where it's just like that little feeling like, oh, wow, I'm that close to greatness. Or, or someone that is famous, someone that I've seen on TV, something I, a person I've read in the magazines. Right. He didn't Hollywood me either, but my voice went up like 10 octaves. So I was like, hey, MJ. <laughs> he was like, hey. <laughs> but it went up. It went up. <laughs> Hi. How are you, Mike? <laughs> Jeez. I mean, it's just one of those things, man. It's like, yeah. wow, you're in, in the presence of greatness. Uh-huh. Is there something, Johnny, that you want to do that you haven't accomplished yet in your career? Um, not really, man. I, I've done a lot. 
and I enjoy what I've done and what I've been doing. Um, just thankful and blessed to be a part of uh, this great company, um, this great show, and um, I look forward to the future. Well, I think it's cool that you are, are working with me because I'm someone who listened to you and then you come to find out in the interview process, wait a minute. Let's see, Johnny Moore, Naki. Wait a minute. It's the same guy. <laughs> it's like, what is he doing? <laughs> I was wondering where he's been. And then there you are. And I was just like, immediately, because you don't know this part of the story, immediately, as soon as the interview process was over with Cap and I, as we were looking for um, a new executive producer, I said, do you know that who that is, Cap? Ah, no shot. Who is that? Like, like, you don't know who this guy is. I said, <laughs> I said that's an iconic broadcaster that's just going to be helping us out tremendously. Yeah? yeah. I was like, yeah, you just don't understand. <laughs> I said, I'll explain to you later. <laughs> Goodbye. I got to make other calls. Um, but, yeah, so we got a lot to say. Um, and I think people across the country would definitely enjoy what we do every morning. I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. I think that the, the ESPN Chicago app helps. We're getting calls from all over the country. Yeah, that, I think the whole station true. does, but it just it's amazing to see the reach of of the station because of the app and, and what we're doing in the morning. I'm enjoying it uh, tremendously. And as I've told other people, from my standpoint, I'm letting it all hang out. Yep. Just like all of it. Now, maybe I didn't feel that way when I first got here because I don't think I was allowed to let it all hang out <laughs> um, under Disney and under previous regi- uh, management, but... Mm-hmm. You know, whether you like us or don't like us, it doesn't, I mean, we're letting it all hang out. You're letting it all hang out on, from the production standpoint and keep staying in my ear and keep me on track, thank God, uh, late nights, early mornings. It's not just a meme, it's, a, it's real life, okay? <laughs> so, you know, I, I just think that we're just having the, the time of our lives, and I'm just glad that you're part of it um, because I just think that the sky's the limit for our show and for this company because uh, I feel like, as you well know, Johnny, it, it, it sucks just to be the same. Yeah. I mean, I mean to, to be able to have one f- a flavor of ice cream is fine, but I feel like we have s- several flavors of ice cream on the show. The different, between Shay, Cap, you, and me, there's different flavors of ice cream all in the same show. It's amazing. And so that's, I think that, that that appeals to the audience, you know, positive, positively or negatively. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if we have different flavors of ice cream, we do all four of us do it differently, and I just think that that's great. This has been a pleasure, man. I just wanted people to be able to know your life because I think it, it, it's very interesting. I knew some of it, but now I, now I know the complete picture. I think we all know the complete picture yeah. of a lot of things that you've gone through in the business. And so I'm glad that you carved out some time for us to talk about it. I appreciate you having me, brother. Johnny Moore, Jay Moore with us, one of our executive producers on Cap and Jay Hood Morning Show and helps us the sound of this, uh, of this station, ESPN 1000 and... Um, the Chicago Bears radio network sounds just amazing because I've always thought, you know, AM should sound like FM. I've been saying this for 30 years, and now look what's happened. That is so true. (laughs) Now now look what's happened. Now you come in here (laughs) making it sound like it's supposed to sound. So thank you for all your efforts. No one's told you lately. Thank you. Love you. Thank you, and I really appreciate what you've done for my life, our show, and our station. Love you too, bro. Appreciate it.